Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure, timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. As we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, we follow Jesus' teaching as he teaches us what is the greater and true righteousness and how that contributes to a life of wholeness, this journey of a being a whole person, uh, which of course the thesis, if you will, being um, in Matthew 5 verse 48, be whole as your heavenly father is whole. Great episode, very important part of understanding the whole teaching. So today we contrast Three different contrast of twos, and Matthew loves recapturing, or sorry, capturing Jesus's uh, triads of discussion. When Jesus likes to make a point, sometimes he likes to do it through triads, triads. And so uh, there is a triad of contrast of twos. We're going to talk about the two different treasures, the two eyes, and the two masters. That is where we're headed today. And as you will see, this contributes very much so in line with the discussion of wholeness. So, uh, kind, of, kind of like, what's the goal here? Because like, oh, why contrast twos? Because uh, first of all, it's not like, hardly, I mean, never does Jesus present there, or does the Bible as a whole present like there being many, many different paths. It's not like there's a hundred different paths you can choose in life. It's really what it comes down to, and some would call this stereotyping or generalizing, but it's what the Bible presents is there's only two paths. There's, you know, the path that leads to God and his path for you, and then there's the path that's not. So I guess any other path would fall under that category. So uh, yeah, there's always a contrast of two. Think of the two paths of Psalm 1. And so what Jesus does here in these contrasts, as you will see, is it's almost like imagine everyone sitting on a fence because everyone loves to sit on the fence when it comes to issues. We like to have one foot dangling on one side and one foot dangling on the other, but we're kind of indecisive. Now that's going to be a key word for today. We're indecisive. We're, we're divided. We aren't being holistic and devoted to one side or the other. So what Jesus does with these contrasts is um, he, he basically knocks down the fence, lets it crumble under its own weight, and it therefore reveals where someone stands all along. Because in reality, when there is something that is a contrast of two, when something uh, or two things are pitted against each other that are not reconcilable to actually be both, then reality is, even if you're trying to put on the show that you're on both, uh, you're either one or the other. You're all either devoted to one or the other. And so Jesus knocking down the fence reveals where our true loyalty lies. That's the genius of knocking over the fence, letting us see where we fall. His teaching isn't so much telling you to jump to the other side, though that certainly is implied. It's revealing what's already true of someone digging at the issue of the heart. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Read along. Do not ever store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and corrosion destroy, 
which, by the way, that word destroy is a good word link. The same word to describe how the religious hypocrites disfigure their faces when fasting to make a show in Matthew 6.16. So a word link in how they disfigure their faces and how um, moth and corrosion destroy things. Interesting, interesting, interesting. So, uh, yep, do not ever store up treasure for yourselves on earth where moth and corrosion destroy them and thieves break in and steal them. Instead, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor corrosion destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal them. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Now, what is not being said is a good place to start. And don't want to spend much time on this, but basically Jesus does not ban savings or financial planning or ownership of property. Um, I mean, in, in fact, the Bible praises those who work and prepare for, you know, the seasons of winter, if you will, um, for the, the lesser season, you know, or as you would say, uh, saving for a rainy day. There are plenty of passages on this. Um, and parents saving for their children, etc. And so, um, yeah, I mean, the Bible even expects us to use God's good providence and creation joyfully. And um, God, as it says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So that's not what's being said, that like all material things are inherently bad and saving is bad and all that. Okay, so what is being said in this passage? Well, what you treasure determines the map of your life. In other words, what you label as treasure in material or immaterial, the metaphor, of course, pictures material possessions, but don't let it limit that because some people don't treasure possessions and such. They're, they're treasuring things like status or reputation or things like that. No, so material or immaterial, what you label as treasure, you will build a life plan around finding it. And you will find it. That, that's the assumption of the text, that you will find the treasure you seek. But, but is it really worth it? You know, the, the equity of your life depends on what you label as your treasure. Is your treasure constantly at risk of being destroyed or taken from you? Because that's the thing. If it is, man... The volatility of life, in, in the year 2020 that we've lived in, we've definitely seen that. Things that we thought were stable and how this year was going to go obviously did not go that way for basically anyone on this globe. So the point being what we label as treasure, I mean, my gosh, there are certain things if we label it treasure, it's at constant risk of being taken from us, either by th like nature, you know, just things naturally eroding uh, in this broken world, <laughs> or by the brokenness of the people in the world and by, uh, you know, it being taken from you by force, by thievery and so on. Is, is, is what you label treasure constantly at risk of being destroyed or taken from you? If so, that is not a good treasure. It's not something you can count on. Um, and so uh, the, on the antithesis, on the other side of that, <clears throat> Jesus tells us to actually, so the, the solution is to not have treasure because that's not possible. We have desires, and that's God-given to have desire, but to desire, to label as treasure, to store up treasure in heaven. And I, I think this verse gets often misunderstood because of our concepts of heaven, which you've probably heard me talk about before, but I mean, when, when, when we think about how the ancients understood heaven, they didn't primarily think of heaven as the place you go when you die, though that be true, 
Heaven was thought of God's dimension that paralleled our own and was closely intertwined with intersecting with it at certain points. It, it, it was the place where God ruled and reigned and governed even the universe. And so the heavenly reality in, intersected and influenced even our own. And so it wasn't I think so future-oriented exclusively, but also present-oriented. So I think my point of saying this is that, you know, if we think of storing up treasure in heaven as purely this future thing, like do good now so that you get treasure in heaven, I think that misses the point on so many levels. But what if the storing up treasure in heaven was storing up treasure in heaven in the present? Doing things right now that would store up treasure in this true reality that parallels our own, that cannot be destroyed, that cannot be taken away from you. Not completely taking out the future element of that. I like what N.T. Wright says here. He says, Jesus wanted his followers to establish heavenly treasure right now, treasure which they could enjoy in the present as well as the future, treasure that wasn't subject to the problems that face all earthly hordes. How can one do this? Well, the whole chapter so far gives us the clue. Learn to live in the presence of the loving Father. Learn to do everything for Him and Him alone. Get your priorities right. Close quote. Get your priorities right. I mean, if, if everything in the previous section of the Sermon on the Mount, well, not everything, but the previous part of Matthew 6, was about evaluating certain actions, um, well, this is more so about evaluating ambitions, so it cuts even deeper to the interior of righteousness, deeper into the interior of wholeness by getting more, at, more and more at the heart of the issue. Very much so, you can look at the previous section and talk about those actions and talk about the motivations behind those, absolutely. But now we're getting at an orientation of ambition. Getting your priorities right is what it's getting at here. And so the difference between earthly treasure and spiritual treasure, you know, heavenly treasure, if you will, heavenly treasure should be defined broadly, I think. So we don't want to limit this too much as everything that believers can take with them beyond the grave. So yeah, that present part of it, that, that part that is true right now that cannot be robbed from you at any moment by uh, anything that in, in nature, by any person, things that cannot be taken from you. And things that cannot be taken from you, even by death itself. So, as Christians, and in light of good theology, what are the things that we can take beyond the grave that are indestructible even right now in the present? Just think about that for a second. What are the things that cannot even be robbed by death itself? Now let's go some obvious ones. Our relationship with God. Absolutely. And, we, and though that's obvious, it should not be taken for granted. Uh, death cannot separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter eight, amen. Uh, our relationship with others, um, <clears throat> fellow believers like that. I, I reiterate this time and time again with those who I'm in close fellowship with. Like part of the reason why I have the motivation to continue to invest in these relationships, um, part of the motivation, not the only motivation, is because it, these relationships transcend life itself. They go beyond this life. The memories we make are not going to be stripped from us in, in regard. It's the memories we take with us and the memories that we're going to build after this. The relationship itself is taken with us. You can take that with you. You can't take your stuff, but you can take the very relationship that you have of course with God, but also with others. How about this, our character? 
our character. I mean, there's a very the, the thing that God is doing in you, uh, building in your spirit, building in your body, sorry, building in your body, building in your spirit, building in your heart, um, metaphorically, uh, that is something you take with you. And yeah, we look forward to the total and holistic transformation that takes place with being in God's presence. Uh, absolutely. But there is something being done in us right now that cannot be taken from us by anyone right now or by death itself. And how about this last one? I mean, there's more that can probably be said, but the lives of those who we have impacted, that's treasure in heaven. That's treasure that parallels this reality, but in a way that cannot be robbed, cannot be destroyed. You know, see, these things cannot lose their value. You know, I, I... the, the passage is calling us to invest in things that have eternal effects. Possessions met, are the metaphor and partially the meaning, but also much more than just our possessions. It's a posture. It's a way of life that is embraced. What we treasure determines what we invest our lives into, and that includes our resources. You know, the famous time, talent, and treasure, the three T's. What we treasure determines how we, um, well, that's funny, one of the T's is treasure, but okay. Uh, our, how we invest our time, how we invest our money or resources, and how we invest our talent, our gifts, and so on, and abilities and skills. And so um, all of this is about fi- finding the ourselves investing in the heavenly reality versus just the things that can be robbed and stripped away from earthly and sometimes vain pursuits. I, I love this illustration, and this is brought up to me by a friend when we were discussing this passage. So shout out to Ben. I don't know if you're going to hear this or not, but Ben, thanks for helping me uh, come up with this illustration. But, you know, it, it's kind of like in the movie The Grinch, you know, and it's famously called something along the lines of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The Grinch, you know, tries to steal Christmas. He uh, plots and schemes for what I assume to be days and then takes away their trees, takes away their gifts in the middle of the night. He is like this passage in that he's like a thief that comes in and steals things. And by the end of it all, when he has taken all of Whoville's gifts and things and trees and treats, he believes he has stolen Christmas from them. And then to his great surprise, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, (laughs) the Who's come out and they're singing on Christmas morning this triumphant song. And he sees and he's baffled and then his heart is transformed because he sees no one can really steal Christmas. Because while we use things like gifts and trees and treats to, you know, get into the holiday spirit and to celebrate, Christmas isn't actually those things. No one can steal Christmas. It's a heavenly treasure we cherish. The true meaning of the advent of the coming Christ and what it represents in history and what it represents for the future and so on. No one can steal that. You can take all the elements of Christmas, but you can't take away the essential meaning. No one can steal Christmas. That's something that cannot be stolen. It's heavenly treasure. So here lies the sobering truth. What you treasure becomes the guiding principle for your life. What you treasure determines the map you use and therefore the place you will be found. And as we said, the assumption is that you will find it. That you will, the the tenacious human spirit will find what it does treasure. You will use a map, you will reverse engineer how to get there, and you will devote your life to building a plan to find it. And that's why this, the metaphor here is one of sphere. 
It's a location one. If your treasure, um, if you treasure the fleeting and corruptible things, so your heart will be found there with fleeting and incorruptible things, and therefore your heart might itself crumble at what it has found, something that can be taken from itself. And if you treasure the heavenly and eternal things, so your heart will be found as, as a pocket of heaven on earth. This is a deep metaphor. There deserves even more attention than even this. It leads us to the next part of the passage, though, because what we make the center of our lives' vision comes from our eye, metaphorically, as you will see. So verses 22 through 23. Matthew 6, 22 through 23. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is wholly devoted and generous, your entire body will be blazing with light. But if your eye is evil, your entire body will be replete with darkness. Therefore, if the light that is in you is actually dark, how terrible that darkness is. Now, first of all, when we hear something about having a good eye or a bad eye or whatever, I think of Little League, you know, when, gosh, I was sometimes so scared of getting hit by the ball um, by from the pitcher that I just stood there and hoped not to get hit and tried to dodge the ball, and hey, sometimes it worked out. And uh, they would throw enough balls and not strikes to where I would get to walk to first base, and my coach would yell at me, good eye, Braden, good eye. Like, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it was a good eye as dodging the ball. Uh, but that's not exactly what's getting on here, of course. That's just silly, my first thoughts there. But, you know, so the ancients, what they understood of the view or how the eye worked, it's known as the extra mission, extra mission theory of vision. <laughs> that was a little tongue twister for a moment. Which treated the eye as a source of light that sheds its rays outside the body. In other words, the ancients believed that the light sorry, that light emulated out from the eye. So of course, what we believe is that, hey, our eyes function to receive and be receptors of the light that comes into it and there, that's how we perceive things around it. The ancients believed that it's almost like they had a lamp or a fire, a torch inside their eye and based on the health or the ability of that torch, it provided and emulated light outward to see better versus the darkness. In other words, uh, metaphorically, too, that the eye serves to tell us about a person's spiritual condition. Um, yeah, and so the difficulty, though, is really translating this because, as you probably heard in my translation, it doesn't really match yours, most likely. Most translations will say, therefore, if your eye is healthy, your entire body will be full of light, blazing with light, etc. And so um, if your eye is healthy, but this comes from the Greek word haplous, uh, this is the word here for healthy or if your ha eye is good or whatever. But um, that the, the difficulty is that haploos does not mean healthy, as many translations have it. In its most general and foundational sense, it refers to singleness or wholehearted devotion. That's what haploos means. But, of course, as a translator, you're like, oh my gosh, how do I bring out this metaphor for a modern audience? Uh, if you say, therefore, if your eye is single, <laughs> Rick, well, what do you mean if my eye is single? <laughs> Uh, I have two eyes, so I guess, I mean, my single eye is single. It just doesn't help with the metaphor, at least for a modern reader. But that's what hapless means in its most foundational sense. So why translate it as healthy? I think they're trying to solve the tension of communicating this rich and complex metaphor without making it more confusing. Personally, though, I, I think because of doing deep lexical study and uh, looking more into how this word is used in a, in a biblical sense, uh, like, looking at how it's used um, outside of the Bible and other literature, 
I think the best way to translate this is to give it both of the meanings that are meant in the text. In other words, kind of like how every word has a range of meaning, um, Haplus does too. And uh, it means singleness or wholehearted devotion, but in many contexts, if, for example, in the Old Testament, it implies, the way it's used implies generosity. And so now, when a word is pregnant with two meanings, don't divide the twins. Bring them both out together. That's a little playful way I like to think about it. When a word is pregnant with meaning, with two meanings, don't divide the twins. Bring them both out as much as possible. So I translate haplous as holy, devoted, and generous. And the idea of wholeness should not surprise us. That's one of the key themes, if not the key theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as you can hopefully see in context of how this part of the passage fits in with verses 19 through 21 and then verse 24, being wholly devoted and generous uh, splits both ways in its meaning. Haplus is just, it, it basically is a brilliant word choice because um, the generosity, I mean, storing up treasure in heaven is like being generous instead of greedy and all of that. And then being wholly devoted, as you will see, cuts into verse 24 about how we can't have two masters. We have to be devoted to one. So haplus is this brilliant interchange that goes both ways. And so uh, in the old, in the ancient world too, so not only did they see the eye as uh, emulating light outward, but they had this phrase that of evil eye. That's what they would say is like if someone has an evil eye or if they have a good eye. Um, in Hebrew, it would be the ayin ra'a versus the ayin tova. The ayin ra'a is the bad eye. The ayin tova is the good eye. Um, and so, yeah, if your eye was evil, you would see evil, dish out evil. If your eye was good, you would see good and give out good. And a good way of thinking about this and um, is, you know, think about the people in life and not, not just those who are pessimistic by nature, but those who are like fallen into it to where everything they see in life is pessimism. They, it's like they're just regurgitating the negative news of the day and all they see is the bad in the world. Every, and, and no matter what the situation, they're going to find the bad. I, it's just craziness. Versus the people who, uh, despite what's going on, the kind of like the people that will say, yet yeah, I see the good, or nevertheless, I see the good. And this is, again, different from pessimism and optimism as predispositions of people's personalities. It's deep, different and deeper than that. You know, there's a phrase that says, um, you will find what you are looking for in life. You will find what you're looking for. So if you are looking for the bad in life, you will easily find that. You will. It's not hard to find the bad in life and to then have an evil eye. But if you look for the good, you will find that too. Yep, even in dark and tumultuous times, you will find the good if you're looking for it. You know, not infrequently in scripture is the eye equivalent to the heart that is, to set the heart and to fix the eye on something are kind of synonymous. So the argument seems to go like this. Just as our eye affects our whole body, so our ambition, where we fix our eyes and heart, affects our whole life. You know, it's, it's interesting because um, what this does here, again, is it just Jesus is kicking over the fence in this contrast and just showing where we really are at the moment. Um, some people, based on what they see, if they have a life that is generous, if they have a life that sees the good, they have a good eye. It's coming from the eye. It's emulating outward. The light that is protruding from that person is coming from the inside. And you know, this shouldn't be surprising to us too, because, um, well, 
all throughout scripture, but even in the Sermon on the Mount, the followers of Christ are called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So when people look at this city, this, uh, this community of believers who are light because they have the light of Christ in them, of course, um, it is that they see the light emulating from the city outward. Well, from the eye, the light emulates outward. It affects what we see because of what is on the inside. What we see in the world and what we do with what we see and how we perceive things and the actions that come out from us are from what come from the inside of us, which essentially comes from our heart. But it comes from having a good eye, coming from a hapless eye, an eye that is wholly devoted and generous, an eye that sees the good and an eye that sees the opportunity for storing up treasure in heaven, but also an eye that is wholly devoted. It's single, it's not divided, it's not darkened. Um, it is blazing with light and therefore only has one master it serves, which we're about to get into. But I wanted to point out one more thing real quick of this whole evil eye because Matthew comes back to this later on. You see, in Matthew chapter 20, when Jesus is giving a parable I just love, a parable of the vineyard workers where, you know, he hires some early in the day, hires some later in the day, and so on. And then at the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage. And then those who were hired first are like, hey, that's not fair. What the heck? Like, you're paying them the same thing you paid us. Why do we get the same reward even though we didn't work the same amount of hours or the same level of difficulty? And, you know, in response to them... Um, the, the master, of course, being God, replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do with uh, what I have and what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? That's verse 15. Are you jealous because I'm generous? Now, cool, smoothed out translation there, and a lot of your translations might say something like that, but Literally in the Greek, looking at it right now in the Greek text, uh, it is, um, gosh, this is so good. It's, or is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am? See, the evil eye contrasts with the good eye in a very explicit verse. Or is your eye evil because I am good? You see, the evil eye is greedy and stingy and sees the bad and is all about self-preservation and so on sometimes because it sees the goodness of God or the generosity of God and how grace plays into the world. It's all about self. And when it sees others, it it does not want the best for them. It does not want the equality of God's grace or love and so on. And of course, the the theme of reward in the gospel of Matthew is so important. And um, gosh, there's so much more to say here. And that's why I'm gonna say this. I'm going to do blog posts more about this passage as a whole. Like, I feel like there's a lot in Matthew 6, 19 through 24 and so on. And uh, I'm going to do more blogs on this. And if you didn't know, um, Adventures in Theology is not just a podcast. It's a website, adventuresintheology.com. I guess I'll link to that in the show notes and start doing that more often. I should link that every single week now. Note to self. Um, And so I'm going to start writing blogs more in depth on some of these things because Gosh, I did not want to leave this passage, and I wanted to make this passage multiple weeks, and I thought about it, and I also was like, you know what? I'm going to do more in the blog, so more resource coming your way. Check it out. Take a look. Be on the lookout um, and read those. I hope to make those very compelling and engaging, okay? Cool. All right. Last verse. Are you ready for this? Matthew 6, 24, um, which says, let me 
find it. I'm actually pulling up my Bible to read it. There we go. Okay. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon. Great word choice there. Which mammon, I like the trans... Just saying mammon versus like you cannot serve God in money because uh, money is too simplified. It's too narrow. Narrow. It's too narrow. Because mammon, there's Greek words for money, and Matthew chooses to deploy the word mammon because that's more encompassing of provision as a whole, providence as a whole, material, our basic human needs as a whole. Mammon is the things that we need. And sometimes those things that we, even the basic human needs, become idols. Wow. Like, imagine that. Imagine if your whole life is devoted to serving the very things, the basic needs that serve you. Now that is crazy. If the very things that serve to serve you as basic human needs become your God, they make for a lousy God. And you know, you see, you you cannot pursue mammon, basic provision, and dare I even say the American dream, and God at the same time. You will either use mammon or providence or money to serve your master, God, or you, you will use God to serve your master, mammon. And obviously money and possessions and provisions, basic human needs are fine and not inherently evil, obviously, but they make for a lousy master. And if they're governing, governing your life, guess what? You will be miserable and empty. I want to ask you to reflect on your decision making in life. How does that reflect who your master is? When you're thinking through a decision to make as an individual, as a married couple or whatever, how does that reflect who your master is? Yes, money is a real thing. Our basic provision is something we have to manage and steward and obtain and so on. But if that's our ultimate pursuit, it might reveal that we have made it the wrong master. You know, you see that the pursuit of wealth, for example, is like seawater. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. Whereas the pursuit of God makes one more and more satisfied. It's amazing to me how many more and more celebrities and successful people are coming out of the woodworks talking about their struggle with depression. Like, depression? How can people who have everything, supposedly, uh, be depressed? Because, as Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And Solomon himself, in the book of Ecclesiastes, gosh, Ecclesiastes 2, 10 through 11 says this, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that I had, toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. I think one of the biggest fears in a lot of our lives, and this should be a fear in our life, is that we get to the end of our life um, and we are reflecting on everything and saying, I missed it. Like Solomon, I had all the resources available to me. I even had wisdom, (laughs) and I had all these choices and paths and times to course correct. And you know what? I get to it all. I survey everything I have achieved and obtained, and yet it's all meaningless. I've missed it. Guys, this passage is important. This is not just an ancillary passage about possessions. It's so much deeper than that. Having the wrong treasure in our sight means having the wrong map. Having an evil eye versus a whole and generous eye, an eye that's wholly devoted on God, makes a big difference on what you see. Because what you see is what you will find. 
and what will protrude from you. And of course, who your master is. I mean, uh, really summing it up, you, you have one master. I know you try to serve more than one, and I know in America we're really good at trying to serve more than one, but at the end of the day, you can only serve one master. A master that will leave you uh, endlessly thirstier for everything that you are obtaining, the thirstier you get, or a God as a master who leaves you more and more satisfied. You know, Jim Carrey once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer, end quote. You can end up being wildly successful and rich, but that won't mean anything if your treasure is in the wrong place, if your eye is dark and your possessions are your master. And in the hands of those with a good eye, possessions are powerful for God's kingdom. In the hands of those with an evil eye, there's quite simply never enough, and they end up hoarding it. And it's not just about obtaining your needs, it's about obtaining their greeds. So not only does money make for a lousy master, not only does money not satisfy our deepest desires, but money and possessions, when it's our treasure, when it darkens our eye, and when we become a slave to it, we end up being people depraved by anxiety. And that's exactly where Jesus leads us into the passage, which we will cover next week. Next week, when you tune in, we are going to talk about the effects of this very passage, which talks about the life of worry versus the life of trust. So until then, we'll see you next time on Adventures in Theology.